Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Apologies, we've had uh, a little break over the last week or so, some technical difficulties, but here we are, back again. So, uh, we've got a treat for you today. Um, I'm discussing the Diary of Anne Frank, the dramatisation of the Diary of Anne Frank, and the history of that dramatisation, its cultural and social effects, and the effects on how we understand and remember the Holocaust. And I'm talking with uh, writer and the editor of Forward Podcast, Adam Langer, um, about his uh, inquiries into the history of um, this um, dramatization and how the book is adapted and became a worldwide phenomenon, um, and the effect that that had on everything from the McCarthyite era in America through to the civil rights struggle. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin and we'll hear from Adam uh, and his story. Okay, and welcome again, everyone, to the Explaining History podcast. Um, I'm joined today by Adam Langer. Um, Adam is the um, executive editor of the Forward podcast and um, author of Playing Anne Frank. Um, And we are going to talk today 
um, about the uh, the story, not of the the life of Anne Frank necessarily, but almost the kind of the the afterlife uh, in uh, literature of Anne Frank and how the um, how the book and came to be dramatized um, and. A little bit of kind of a, a, a around that that whole whole topic area. So, firstly, w- welcome Adam. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about whatever you would like to talk about today, okay. and I will do my best to uh, be clear and precise. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about your first your interest in 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 the story of the yeah. diary of Anne Frank and how this how this has kind of emerged and where you've gone with that. Right, of course. Um, well, I come at this not in the manner of a historian. Um, I, this started out as a novel that I wrote that was published in August. I wrote a novel called Cyclorama that was published in August by Bloomsbury. And it is about a group of high school kids in the 1980s who perform in a production of the diary of Anne Frank and it is a very fraught and traumatic production. And it the novel is about how this experience of appearing in the dramatization of the Diary of Anne Frank goes on to impact their lives. So it visits them in the 1980s and then it zips forward to the 21st century and to show how playing these roles affected their lives and changed their lives and changed their futures, um, the impact of this production. So. Once I was done with the novel, I mean, fiction writing is an act of imagination. And I became curious of what actually happened to the people who were in the original production of The Diary of Anne Frank. The show debuted on Broadway in 1955. Um, It toured the world in the late 1950s. There were productions in dozens of productions in South America, in Europe, and throughout America, a touring company went to more than 100 cities in the United States in the late 1950s. And I was wondering how this affected the people in it. What is it like to live out these stories, to live out the story of the Diary of Anne Frank day after day and night after night? So I went in search of the people who were in the production. I talked to people who played these roles on Broadway, who played these roles uh, in America, who were in, uh, there was a 1959 Oscar winning film of the Diary of Anne Frank. I talked to the actresses who played um, Anne Frank and her sister Margaret, as well as the son of the director, George Stevens, to really get a sense of, not of, you know, how, the history affects us as readers, but about the people who convey the history. How does history affect the, the people who are performing it? What what experience is that like? So that's a little about how the podcast came about, just trying to find the true story, mm. um, not the fictional one, about the lives of the people who told the story on stage and in film. What was your sense of? I mean, obviously, these people would be, you know, quite elderly now. I, I'm, I'm guessing the majority of them. What, what, what was your sense of their? Did they have particularly vivid recollections of, of that period? Very much their lives? so. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it was, you know, it. In some way, it's difficult to say. Like every role an actor plays or has the effect of impacting their life in some way or fashion. Uh, and it could be wholly apart 
from the roles they're playing. But in this instance, talking to people who played Anne Frank, talking to people who played her sister or the heroic um, neighbors who tried to shield them for two years in hiding uh, while uh, <clears throat> while the Gestapo was in search for them. It, it re I really had a sense talking to them that this changed them in some way. This was not an ordinary play. This was something that kind of changed their worldviews. There was one person who I actually didn't talk to who went out after the show, the actor who played Peter Van Dam, the boy with whom Anne is in hiding and has in the play a kind of uh, an innocent sort of romantic uh, relationship with. Shortly after he was done filming, he went out um, to uh, Mississippi to work for uh, to register black voters. And wow. he made a documentary about it in which he quoted Anne Frank uh, and to, to relate it to the situation in the American South. Um, and just everyone I talked to just was really impacted about by it. And everyone sort of, you know, either they were done with theater and they wanted to do something more useful in the world, or they became really serious about the sorts of parts they took or their social responsibility. So it, as one of the actors in it who I talked to said, it wasn't an ordinary play. As she said, it felt like a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, part of the um, part of the reason for the book existing in the first place as a, as a published text was, was Anne Frank's father, Otto Frank, seeing that he had this huge responsibility to tell his daughter's story and, and also for it to have... Um, a kind of you know this is, it was a, um, a man greatly wedded to kind of humanistic ideas and and thinking that it could have some educational value um, around the world. Yeah, it's fascinating actually to see how involved Otto Frank was in the creation of the play. It's not like some, these days where someone just says, "I'm going to option." your story option, your book and Hollywood or Broadway does whatever. He is looking at rewrites. He is meeting with authors. He is sending letters back and forth requesting this was not true to life. This is do not include this scene, do include that scene. Mm. And he is very cordial, uh, gentlemanly in an old world sort of fashion as he is. But you know, you can go into the archives of the producers and you can see how involved he was, how seriously he wants this story to be taken and how he wants it to be told. Um, an episode which has not yet aired, um, it talks about how um, a couple of people tried to make a musical version of the Diary of Anne Frank. And it almost like everyone who was involved in the dramatization of the story had to make a pilgrimage of sorts to meet Otto Frank to get their seal of approval. Millie Perkins, who played the role of Anne Frank in the film, um, the director, the assistant director, they all wanted her, but she first had to meet uh, with Anne Frank to, no, sorry, with Anne Frank's father to get his seal of approval to see if this is the right person to mm -hmm. play his daughter, if this, these are the right writers to tell the story of his family. 
The um, the, the diary itself is. I mean, it has its own its own kind of history. Every if you you know you look at kind of great epochal books of the twentieth century, such as uh, you know Ulysses or Doctor Zhivago or uh, the, you know the writings of Solzhenitsyn, they carry they they sort of make their way around the world and create their own sort of politics. And there are you know in after the Second World War, after the the, the crimes of the Nazis have been revealed. There were countries around the world that were, for various different reasons, more reticent than others to discuss the Holocaust at all. Um, in the 1950s in America, it's not that there was any shred of Holocaust denial, but there was a kind of, and it's it's, it's not even right to call it disinterest, but it certainly wasn't a massive mainstream discourse in the way it is now. Do you think that the 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 the, the dramatization had an effect on not just the actors but the the audiences? Very much so. It, it's interesting to see. Like I, a lot of um, Jewish audience as an artists for a time, the shock of what happened during World War Two, it, it didn't. It wasn't. It took a while for it to start being represented in art. It took a while for artists to begin to assimilate this into their work. And because the Holocaust was not talked about to the degree it is today, um, the play itself became a de facto uh, form of Holocaust education. I mean, now there are Holocaust education and awareness programs. There wasn't that in the 1950s. And the play became that. So when the Diary of Anne Frank wa was doing a roadshow, was touring uh, America, was going to places like Spokane, Washington, or Bloomington, Indiana, or Norfolk, Virginia, this was the way that people in those towns who didn't know about the Holocaust, some of whom had never met, not, not only didn't know about the Holocaust, had never met a Jewish person in their lives. Um, this was how the Jewish story and the Jewish experience was conveyed mm. to them. And the same thing is true in Europe as well. After the war, um, the diary of Anne Frank was a massive, you know, uh, experience in Germany, there were more than 30 productions going on at one time in Germany of this play. Um, so for, you know, people have their issues with the dramatization of the Diary of Anne Frank these days. Uh, I mean, some people say the play was too sentimental. Some people say that it was kind of Christianizing a Jewish story. but. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, this was many people's first encounter with the story of the Holocaust, this this play and mm. later this film. Yeah. And I would say certainly for, you know, my uh, my schooling was in the mid 1980s. And that that's definitely the case. Even then, the, the first encounter with the, the, the story of the Holocaust come comes from that. And I suppose you know, the, um, it, it's a way of humanizing the, the victims and creating a, a kind of like, um, dare I say, a sort of a relatable 
um, a, relate, a, a relatable person to 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 understand. And, um, and that's very much, you know, what the producers in the show had in mind. This was not accidental. This was actually what you want. They wanted to do, and you can read it in this correspondence. How they wanted to make this character relatable, as you would say, to mainstream parentheses read Christ non-Jewish audiences. Hmm. They were very consciously trying to tell a narrative that would be acceptable at the time. And we have to remember that, you know, looking at the Diary of Anne Frank, the play in the film through 21st century eyes, it can seem a little stagey or dramatic or um, hokey in some ways. But this is a uh, I mean, this was coming out, this was touring America in a time when, you know, the Civil Rights Act hadn't even passed. Hmm. So it was the producers were very conscious of trying to bring this story to middle America, as it were, and tell a story that people would be able to understand and hopefully to some time open their eyes, change their viewpoints in some way. Did it ever penetrate the communist world, the, the East, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union? That's a fascinating question that I do not know the answer to. Um, I would really, you know, way then I have lists of all the different countries that the show played in the 1950s. Mm. Um, whether it made its way there has not... Uh, that sounds like a sequel, like something I would like to investigate. I do not. I know. will. I will correspond with you, and I will endeavour to find out. So I'll, uh, I should drop you a line with any with my investigation. Yeah, I'd be fascinating to. Uh, I would be surprised if it didn't on some level. But um, when the history of the dramatic production and all the places played are talk are are talked about, that that issue is generally genuine, generally not raised. One of the reasons I ask is that. Um, Holocaust um, memory and Holocaust politics, um, you know, throughout the communist and the non-communist world has been used and abused in all sorts of different different ways. But particularly the the prevalence, the, the resurgence of, of a post-war anti-Semitism in East Germany, which was a Stalinist anti-Semitism and motivated for different reasons. It was motivated partly because Israel had become essentially a client state of America after 1948. It was done because Stalin was an anti-Semite anyway. It was done because the there were the the um, in East Germany particularly there was this desire to repress the memory of the Holocaust as being a Jewish tragedy and simply just. The, 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 you know, the fascists did something really horrible to all sorts of different kinds of people, um, and um, anybody bringing it, anybody bringing it up to make it a sort of a Jewish tragedy um, is kind of veering from the party line, and you're getting all sorts of trouble for that. So there, there was different reasons, um, but there was there were also um, all sorts of anti-Semitic um, kind of party purges in, in, in East Germany and in other Eastern European countries up until 1953, when obviously Stalin dies. Um, and so what you basically, in the 1950s, what you think about the Holocaust or what you understand about the Holocaust very much depends on where you are. 
and obviously and in Western European countries as well, um, you know, the, the Holocaust is very much a kind of a European enterprise. There were collaborators and people in all sorts of European countries um, uh, for, uh, uh, persecuting the Jews and uh, assisting the Nazis. It was Dutch police officers who arrested Anne Frank uh, initially. In all of these countries, uh, and you mentioned you mentioned Germany, obviously, which at the time would have been West Germany. Yeah, of course. Yeah. In West Germany, West Germany is probably the, the one exam, the one outlier in Europe for the country that, has, that puts the most effort into trying to do something about Holocaust education. Um, the, the French really didn't want to touch it at all. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, that's true. I, I did not find much information about a... Uh, well, no, I believe there was a French production of The Diary of Anne Frank, now that I'm remembering yeah. it, but not to the extent that it was in Germany. It's interesting that you mention like the 1950s and communism because that, that, that was another thing that I found in... It, it, it's interesting because sometimes you look at individual historical phenomena and you don't view, one doesn't view them in context. So one thing that... I found fascinating in my research was that the Diary of Anne Frank was uh, on Broadway during the time of vast anti-communist sentiment in the country, the time of the Red Scare, the time of Red Channels, which was, um, you know, this publication that was designed to blacklist uh, people in the entertainment industry and who had supposedly communist uh, affiliations or sympathies. And the Diary of Anne Frank, it turns out that there were people involved who were using, not not in a conscious sort of way, but who found, you know, found jobs in the theater because they were blacklisted in other forms of the entertainment industry. So there was one actor in the play who couldn't really find work in the 1950s because he was uh, labeled, you know, communist sympathizer, who is 
performing his role eight days a week in Anne Frank, and sometimes he's being dragged to Washington to testify before the House of American Activities Committee about communism in uh, the entertainment industry. Yeah. Um, and they were, if you look at the um, the numbers of um, Jewish scriptwriters, directors, actors, um, and and you know non entertainment people as well, but there 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 is a kind of a distinctly anti Semitic flavour to the the McCarthyite purges um, that you know they 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 never managed to overtly kind of say that um, it, it, there was it was it was motivated by anti-Semitism, but it there there is a kind of a more than a hint that um, you know the enemy within is 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 um, that is not just kind of communist, but you know you have people like the Rosenbergs and and things like that. That yeah, and then and it's interesting also because the the makeup of the cast of the Diary of Anne Frank in Broadway and its subsequent iterations is it kind of represents kind of a melting pot of different cultures and backgrounds. There's some character, some actors playing uh, these people who are Jewish, some who are not. Uh, one actress who uh, comes from Austria, uh, um, one actor who comes from Austria. And the kind of the, it really kind of represents a, you know, a, a, an American experience of sorts, because you have Jews playing Jews, non-Jews playing Jews, touring America. And, and the religion or background is something that's never really stated or talked about too much among the actors. They, they kind of have formed their own identity within the theater and the roles they play and the people they are are separate to some extent. How, how far do you think the dramatization was one of these kind of cultural tipping points where we, you go from perhaps indifference through to attention uh, well i mean of course because i've been looking at it so specifically i feel very much that it was that this production that came to america uh and toured the american south and the heartland that it was very much kind of a, a rise in awareness of Holocaust education, it coincides with um, eyes opening about um, civil rights and uh, the um, lead to desegregation movements in schools. How much of that is this is the diary of Anne Frank doing that or how much it is reflective of a time? This was not like the only film or uh, play that talked about the Jewish experience in America, but it certainly was representative. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to think that this is, you know, the show that changed everything, but I think it's sometimes a little facile to see that because when you view it in context, there are a lot of different phenomena that are happening coincidentally. Yeah. Um, and the Diary of Anne Frank, uh, the play and the film is part of that. Yeah, I think probably what happens is you have seminal cultural moments like that, and probably the you know uh, Schindler's List being um, another key key one, and those coincide with generational changes. You have new generations seeing these things and forming between themselves collectively different judgments to or um, different associations with it, attachments to it than, than yeah, previous. I, I think, you know. 
In terms of learning about the Holocaust, I think every generation has, at least since the end of World War II, has its moment where it first learned of the Holocaust. For one generation, it was the diary of Anne Frank, the play in the film. For a later generation, it was probably like when I was a kid in grade school, it was probably this miniseries called Holocaust, which was, you know, the first TV miniseries about the Holocaust that starred Meryl, Meryl Streep and Michael Moriarty. Uh, yes. And then in the nine, like, I guess around nine, the 1990, I believe that's when Schindler's List came out. Um, for that generation, that's the, the seminal moment. So there are these different, but there seems to be in every generation, like this cultural event that leads to an awareness. And yeah. in the 1950s, uh, late 1950s, this was the one. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that for me is the interesting bit in the story about how these cultural uh, events and happenings shape our understandings and shape the way in which we conceive of the past. Um, there was a fascinating story. I, I used to be a, a Holocaust educator for the British Holocaust Education Trust. Um, and I remember um, talking to survivors and initially in, in Britain during the, the, the late 1940s, early 1950s, there again, like America, there was precious little talk about the Holocaust. And one of the reasons for that was, was um, it was about the preservation of a British narrative to the war. The, the British had had uh, a war where they pretty much lost everything that they'd gone to war for. Um, and they, there was an attempt to reclaim, you know, the, the spirit of the Blitz and the Battle of Britain and all this sort of stuff. It's a very, very huge part of British character and, and, and uh, a remembrance. And other narratives have to get crowded out in order for that to happen. There was a, um, the historian, Tony Judd, was talking about who's a, a British Jewish um, mm -hmm. uh, historian. And he was talking about his school, his his childhood he said there were obviously his family weren't uh, particularly affected by the holocaust i think distant relatives that he didn't know were affected were, were killed but here um he said there were other jewish boys in his school and you would listen to the the british boys talking about their fathers being in the desert with monty and in the jungles with uh, fighting the japanese and the story that their the story of the war that the Jewish boys had was well, you know, my my grandparents or, or my father was in in a, a, a camp in Poland, and so that the the need to for, in Britain after the war to own the narrative of 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 the war was had a kind of a powerful social and cultural um, way of, of justifying this this pretty disastrous period. Um, that we've been through, um, which resulted in, you know, arguably quite a pyrrhic victory, and so it's, it's sometimes you get the you get, you get other narratives that not necessarily force their way in, but the other narratives, such as the story of Anne Frank, that appear to a population that have never not that they haven't repressed the knowledge, but they've never considered it. It's never been presented to them, and then you get things starting to change. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, this is as true for the audiences who saw this play in this film as it was for the actors in it. They were not immune from 
this sort of cultural ignorance at the time for many of the people who were involved in the show, like actors who I talked to who played the role of Anne Frank, they didn't know about, they didn't know this story until they were in it. They were, I mean, Jewish actors, non-Jewish actors, this, you know, as they were educating America and the world about the Holocaust and Anne Frank, they were being educated themselves. They didn't know this story or they had heard, you know, little bits of it that their parents had told them or little bits that they had read in books. They hadn't read Anne Frank's diary before they performed Anne Frank's diary. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and so they are part of that, that process that the audience is seeing as well, which really quite, quite kind of fascinating, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, um, there we will must, must leave things. Um, if people want to listen to the podcast, how, how, how do they access it? I can put links in the show notes, but please do. do. Yes, um, you can access it directly through the Forwards website, forward.com. It's, and it's on all the usual platforms. It's on Apple, it's on Spotify, it's on Stitcher. It is playing Anne Frank. And we have done, published three episodes so far and the fourth episode coming up. There will be seven in all plus bonus episodes to follow. Well, that's fantastic. Well, all the best with it, Adam. And thank you so much for spending the time to have a chat with us um, about Anne Frank. And um, we may speak again. You never know. Okay. Thanks so much. And best of luck with the podcast. All the best. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 